If a reasonable skeptic said that such things do not exist, he can only mean to say that they do not exist relative to his knowledge. Because to deny the possibility of the existence of anything of which we know nothing would imply that we imagined ourselves to be in possession of all the knowledge that exists in the world, and believe that nothing could exist of which we did not know. Franz Hartmann, Paracelsus and the Substance of His Teachings. Join us tonight for episode 3 of Into the Portal as we investigate the lore of the homunculus. Welcome back into the portal. I'm Andrew McKay. And I'm Amber Ray. So welcome back for part one of two mm-hmm. for this third episode of Into the Portal. Yep. We ended up breaking it up. We ended up splitting it up, which is actually kind of funny because when we first started talking about what we wanted to do for episode three, we thought we would try to maybe choose something that we could maybe get into for an episode that yeah. was under an hour or something. A little, little lighter. But then sure enough, we were down well, the rabbit hole and of course. way too much to look into. So it's going to be a, our first ever two-parter, which is kind of fun. Yeah. So we have a little bit of housekeeping before we get going. Why don't you go for that there, Amber? Mm, not much to say, really. All I want to say is that we do have a bookstore up and running now. I'm uh-huh. super pumped on that. Yeah. Looks awesome. It's on the website. Visit intotheportal.com for all that good stuff. As well, I did want to give a shout out to Big Bruce 55 Thank you so much for your lovely review. That made me very happy. Yeah, our first ever Google Play review, which yeah. is cool. Yeah, yeah I was I'm, pumped. We're, yeah, we've been getting tons of great feedback. Lots of reviews on iTunes, but yeah, you can do them on Google Play Music as well, mm-hmm. which, is, which is great. Yeah. One other exciting thing we do want to mention right off the bat here in relation to the first bit, right, about the two parts. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so basically <laughs> in our second part... We're going to be having a guest expert in the field of alchemy. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so that will be with Travis J. Dow of the History of Alchemy podcast. Um, we first discovered him on, what was it, the uh, episode of Castle Holska with Astonishing Legends? Yeah, he yes. he came on there. for I think it was that one where he came on for an interview. Mm-hmm. But He also does the Bohemian podcast too. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you might have got, heard uh, of him from there. Yeah, but. Podcast Nick is his uh, little group of podcasts and right, things, which collective. is super cool. Mm-hmm. But yeah, History of Alchemy is awesome. You guys should go check it out. But we're going to bring him on for part two, which is, yeah, kind of the main reason why we split this up. So yeah, uh, we've got a lot of ton of content to get to in part one alone, and then we wanted his expertise. Exactly. So basically we're going to give you an overview and some background information and then we're going to lead up to a teaser and then yeah next week we'll have uh, more information from Travis. So let's get into it. Mm -hmm. So this episode is all about I mean it's it's roots are in alchemy but we are covering the lore the legend of the homunculus Mm -hmm. which if you've never heard of it before, which I certainly hadn't before I started to look into this, and this was totally Amber's idea, and to be totally honest, I was a little bit hesitant about it at first, and as soon as I started to look into it, I was like, wow, this is bizarre, this totally fits with what we do. You didn't think we'd have enough content. I didn't think we'd have enough content, like, and sure enough, here we are, two, two parts. Two parts. Pretty hilarious. Yeah. So the definition of a homunculus, we're mm-hmm. just going to do just the basics here. It is a Latin term for little human, little man. Uh, so ideally... You know, it's a, it's a fully formed miniature human-like mm. emphasis on the like. 
Um, but they're artificially grown. Artificially grown miniature humanoid creatures that alchemists, tons of different recipes. All throughout the years they've claimed to have made. But this is, mm. yeah, this has been a reoccurring thing for, for millennium, really. Mm-hmm. So we're going to get into some of the background of it. Super cool story. Really bizarre. At first, I, think I was we like, should mention that there are some alternative conceptions. Like when you Google homunculus, you're gonna see a whole bunch of models of the sensory organs of right. the human body. Things totally. like big, big old lips, big hands, big whatever, and that is mm-hmm. a completely different thing. Yeah. So, so don't in get the that so in the modern field of of uh, psychology, I guess that's is is where it came up, I believe. Right. So that's the idea of like your your the the, the sensory perception and yeah. how it's linked to the brain and how it's mapped in the brain. Exactly. But we're getting into the ancient definition, the 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 origin of the word mm-hmm. per se. So yeah. So let's let's. I'm gonna I'm gonna get right into that into the background here. So what we What's came up with. What's the earliest example? Yeah. So like the the earliest example that we could find was from something that's called the Book of the Cow, which. If you try to Google that too, you're going to come up with a bunch of Egyptian texts for the book of cow, which is totally different. But if you slip in oh. the the, it's uh, it was a book by Plato. So it was a work from from the Greek philosopher Plato, who, I mean, it's sort of up in the air exactly when it was written, but it's somewhere in the fourth century BC, mm-hmm. something like that. And this is supposedly the earliest reference that we yes. that right that we both found that mm-hmm. we found. So basically what this says, so there, he, he, they talk about the procedures for creating a homunculus and there's a bunch of different recipes. Like I just said, we're not going to get into the detail of all of them for the reason that it is really gross. Yeah. It's pretty disgusting. <laughs> it's pretty gross. Um, at least for the substances used that we know what they are. So, but I'll, I'll give a little t- <laughs> And then <laughs> there's little... all those very obscure ones that you're like, I don't even know yeah, what that is supposed Dragon's to be. teeth and stardust. stardust. And very those strange. are kind of some questions that I definitely want to save for Travis for yes. part two. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so the Book of Cow. So earliest reference. And it basically says that there were, it references two different types of recipes. So all of the homunculus, it requires basically human bodily fluids one of them being semen. A lot of it. A, mm-hmm. a lot of it. And then a different type of animal of some kind. So it's usually be like the womb of a cow. In the book of cow, they reference an unknown animal in one recipe and then another, the womb of a monkey. So they're not using glass jars yet. They're not using I glass, guess glass jars was yet. Was glass even a thing back then? It, they, the vessels were definitely different in the 4th century. I guess they were using clay pots back mm-hmm. then. Yeah, so they were still using an incubation of, they started that with animal. That makes a lot more sense, hey? Like using, yeah, the womb of another biological yeah, organism. rather than just As opposed the... to a sterile jar. Yeah, totally. But essentially what they're trying to do with all this and the idea behind alchemy itself is, is transmutation. Yes. And that word carries a lot of baggage with it, I think, but really all it means is changing... Transmutation of matter, specifically. Right. right. Mm-hmm. So why don't you just give a little bit more on that then? I mean, transmutation essentially wow. is That's just, pretty much all I got. Like, it's, it's a precursor to modern chemistry. Right. And a lot of the times it does get conflated with this um, <laughs> mythical transforming of, a lot of the times, metals into gold as like the goal of all alchemists, which really was laughable by a lot of alchemists. Yeah, so, that's a stereotype for it sure. Really for is, yes. mm-hmm. It really is, yes. It wasn't just about that. And we're going to we're gonna give some examples of how ancient yeah. alchemists really did contribute to modern chemistry. So it all really starts with Aristotle and alchemy. Okay. 
well, that's what I found at least in the West because there is a Chinese version of alchemy that definitely has different origins. Yep. Um, I have a quote here from John Leinhard or Leinhard from the University of Houston. And he says, quote, alchemy originated when Aristotle took up an older idea that all matter combined the four elements of earth, air, fire, and water. He guessed that these elements could be changed or transmuted by the action of heat and cold or dampness and dryness. End quote. Interesting. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that's more of a, um, a practical definition. There were elements of Neoplatonism, like, and that kind of goes after the idea of it's something higher than the pursuit of um, matter, you know, right. like Platonism. He was a well, we should give a tiny bit. So Neoplatonism essentially that is, is it's, it's a it's a resurgence of uh, Platonic ideology, yeah. right? That originated with before. Plato. It, well, obviously, obviously, yeah, yeah, Greek <laughs> culture, and definitely, yeah, he had this idea that there was sort of like the the meta realm, right, where right. things like the the forms of things existed. I remember being in like philosophy 101 and they were saying i don't even know exactly how this went down but they were saying like the form of a chair they had this analogy with a chair and i remember i just got so confused and this was my first little taste of (laughs) of uh yeah philosophy and i just i was like okay you know what i don't know this for me (laughs) i wish i had paid more attention though it was my first year yeah that might have been a little bit helpful eh? but anyways yeah so with neoplatonism it's more of a metaphysical spiritual or um philosophical pursuit of knowledge and enlightenment, essentially. So anyways, those are all elements that played into um, pre-scientific revolution ideologies and and all that. So, well, uh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Alchemy was definitely part of that sort of pre-scientific revolution. (laughs) So what else do you have there on Aristotle? Let's get some more, let's get a little bit more background on him. Because he is, I mean, obviously he came after Plato. Um, I mean, well, well, we'll get into him more later for sure, because he had some interesting thoughts on elements and the energies from the earth and the ideas behind nature and stuff like that. And that sort of ties into the ingredients and the things that were going into alchemical recipes and stuff like that, which yeah. I think is really cool. Well, Aristotle never directly um, referenced a homunculus or any recipe no. relating to a homunculus. No, he, he, no, he did not. not. About that no, he didn't, ref- no he, he didn't believe in that, but he did believe in the idea that there were fully formed, like you just said, like a fully formed human man inside of a sperm. They, things like that. He believed in the... Right. The, so the animalcules yeah, theory. Yeah. And that goes into the preformationist theory, if I'm getting that correct. Yeah, I think that's... But anyways, right. we'll talk about theories later mm-hmm. on. We just want to get some more background, right? As yeah. to alchemy and, yeah, it's uh, early, early authorities in the subject. Um, you had some information about a Gay Hong. Yeah, Chinese or... alchemist Gay Hong. Mm-hmm. So this guy was really interesting because he he came up with all kinds of things that were would later be you know pop up in like modern chemistry and things like that. But he he wasn't the typical alchemist. He, he wasn't did trying to Aristotle. Hey. Uh, not from the stuff that I looked because he, at. They kind of had their own foundation, right? That's yeah, I mean, just that he I was copies. operating in the second century. So yeah, a couple hundred years, or sorry, well, sorry, second century AD. So this is like, you know, 600 plus yeah. years after Aristotle. I'm sure he took a lot from, from the works of all those Greek philosophers for sure. But basically the, th- the cool thing about Gay Hong was that he was... I mean, he was interested in gold and he had a recipe for making mosaic gold, which is essentially like a type of like a gold flake kind of thing. And that's still Mm. used today for like gilding things. So Mm. picture frames and like, Mm -hmm. you know, other jewelry and like things like that. 
So that's a good example of like a very, you know, early alchemist and sort of a process that's still, you know, wasn't he the tinfoil guy? Yeah, he was. So that was another thing too. He, he ended, he created a type of tinfoil metal paper, you know, probably not exactly like the tinfoil you're finding in your cupboard today, Mm -hmm. but he, he did come up with this, yeah, this, this tinfoil metal paper and this amazed people. It's It's fascinating. I think that people thought it was magic. Right? Well, how could you not? Alchemy transformation. Yeah, exactly. Right? I mean, yeah. it's like all of a sudden you have this this thin, flexible metal paper that you, you can, can wrap tear. things in. You can in. literally it, tear it. Like a it's bizarre. If you had never seen something like that before, you'd be And even away. paper itself, right? Like that was... Totally. A crazy invention too. <laughs> <laughs> That's all. If you, if you hadn't seen any of these things before... Let's just do an episode on the history it's of gonna, paper. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, saying. we'll bring in Michael Scott as an interview. <laughs> We're definitely not going to. <laughs> De- definitely. Oh, Michael Scott. You just <laughs> Yeah, the office reference. That's there. an office yeah, reference. Yeah, that just happened for sure. <laughs> but anyway, Gay Hong. So but he was interested in a lot of things. So the the cool thing about Chinese alchemy, and I guess this crosses over into a lot of into the Greek, you know, Greek philosophers and other branches of alchemy around the world, that it was philosophical and spiritual. Mm. And it wasn't necessarily just about changing something into something else. So for Gay Hong, he practiced traditional Chinese medicine. Yeah, you know, his interest his interests were spiritual. And it these are all things that were closely linked to alchemy, but mm-hmm. not directly. And so this Eastern philosophy of enlightenment and all these things was basically his version of the elixir of life. You know, I and see. that's where the idea of taking that a lot of these alchemical stories like the homunculus and other things are more allegorical. Mm-hmm. Where his elixir of life, his philosopher's stone for Gay Hong, you know, it's not an actual rock that you find that you can live forever. It's the idea mm. of transcend- transcendence, mm-hmm. the idea of reaching this level of enlightenment. And that was the elixir of life. So it's just kind of a cool Interesting. crossover between spirituality and then the material alchemical world. Huh. And that's a- kind of the line that we've crossed several times, right? In the course of our research, mm-hmm. the idea of homunculus as an allegory versus an actual physical thing. And that, yeah, that's interesting that the elixir of life slash philosopher's stone can be thought of that way. I honestly, I was confused as to where this concept came from. And the earliest reference I got to any sort of form of an elixir or, yeah, like a, I don't know, immortality type substance, that type of thing. um, The earliest known reference I got was actually um, from Greek mythology. Yeah. And it's not actually called the elixir of life or anything, but basically it's the food of the gods is how it's described. And it says ambrosia and nectar. So ambrosia is the food and nectar is the drink. The gods apparently, um, oh, what's his name? Not Thor. Um, Achilles. Achilles heel. Apparently when he was born, he was bathed in ambrosia. And it's a substance that comes from a magical horn of the goat Amalthea. So I'm assuming that's the type of marrow. Substance. It sounds like it would be something like that. Yeah, but again, that's very. <laughs> that can be just you know, that's, that's very. It's that's a, a stretch. <laughs> I don't know how anyone would find this magical goat and how they would suck this substance out of it. But uh, anyways, yeah. But that's the story of alchemy to me. It's that it really there's is. a bunch yeah. of a bunch of um, ingredients and different things used in all kind, not just for the homunculus, but all kinds of things that we can look to and say, okay, we know how that that uh, element behaves now or we know what those combinations do now 
But then there's references to all these things that we don't even know what they were. I mean, yeah, you can say magical goat. What does that or, even mean? Or dragons, bones, and blood. Exactly. What does that mean? Are they getting dragon kimono, dragon bones on the black market from the from the near, near east, or are they, or is this like an actual cryptid creature that has been? Or is it something that is sold as? Like ground up dragon bones, but literally it's just flour or something. Exactly. So it could be anything. That's, that's that's the interesting thing is there's all these sort of bizarre ingredients with no no specifics behind them. So my next story, actually, well, not story, but my next person, mm-hmm. um, just going into early alchemist. Are you done with Gay Hong or? Yeah, I mean, yeah, but he was just a really good reference for for alchemists for really early early alchemy, alchemy that was just focused on more legit like trial and error in chemistry yeah it came up with tinfoil i mean gunpowder was a product of alchemy right, right. like the chinese came up with gunpowder that was you know maybe that er- stardust could be the earliest <laughs> reference know. to gunpowder was in the second century ad from what from what i looked at so that was the same era as gay hong so definitely a lot of things that came out of alchemy that were beneficial mm-hmm. to science and to humanity maybe not gunpowder per se definitely led to a lot of negative things but yeah no it's really cool Lots so of- leading into that because we want to go chronologically eh? we're trying to a little bit yeah <laughs> so we've gone plato to aristotle to gay hong even though he's not actually associated culturally no um my next person is zosimus of panopolis mm-hmm. um who was an egyptian alchemist so he was around circa 300 AD, approximately. I couldn't find an exact date. Okay. But basically this guy, um, I have a quote here from a Fate Magazine article, um, where Zosimus apparently described how an artificial man could be made by the use of dragon's bones, blood, and the Philosopher's Stone. So, the trifecta. The trifecta. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> yeah. And a lot of people have um, that, that reference... Is a little iffy. I wasn't actually able to find that exact um, passage in another source, which in my academic brain is just like red flag. <laughs> totally. But anyways, it was very interesting. And I did come across some theory um, from Carl Jung, actually. He actually... This is a bit confusing because, like, he... In the visions, there was this visions of Zosimos, which was written by the guy, and it was a philosophical text. And then he has several dreams and, like, dream visions and things like that. And... In Carl, this article I read by Carl Jung, he never actually referenced an explicit um, recipe. So there is a bit okay. of, yeah, discrepancy there. But basically, um, yeah, J- Carl Jung, he goes with the more metaphorical um, or allegorical explanation about What how... era was he around in again? I mean, he was. Oh, he was the, the same era as. Carl? Yeah. No, God, no. He was early 20th century uh, contemporary of. Freud. Oh, I'm mixing them up. Oh, yeah. Right, 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 right. Yeah, they were the two, you know, um, psychoanalytic That's right. psychologists. That's right. Anyways. How could I forget that? But yeah, so that was his, Carl's take on it. Um, there's others that have kind of said that Zosimus was inspired by the myth of Cadmus in Greek mythology, okay. which I found really cool. So the what? story goes here um, that this guy, Cadmus, he was the son of Ag- Agenor, the king of Tyre. Tire? <laughs> I don't know, tear tire. The king of Canadian tire. King of Canadian tire there, but <laughs> anyways. So yeah, the story goes that um, this guy, he had a sister who was essentially kidnapped by Zeus. And um, in retaliation, I guess his, his mom and dad basically withered into nothing because they were just devastated over this loss. Mm. And so um, Cadmus, he decides to go looking for her. 
And anyways, he soon, how the story goes, this is a quote here, um, Cadmus went looking for them, so Zeus and uh, his sister Europa, Mm -hmm. and soon came face to face with an enraged dragon. Cadmus attacked the malevolent monster and after a fierce struggle managed to slay it. He then sacrificed the cow, the cow, that's weird that he refers to it as the cow, anyway, sorry, who (laughs) told him um, to get the teeth of the dragon and plant half of them in the ground. As soon as Cadmus did so... A host of fierce warriors appeared out of the ground, and before Cadmus could engage them, the armed men began a ferocious and bloody battle amongst themselves. (laughs) (laughs) That's not very effective. No, that seems counterintuitive. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of people take that as um, as sort of the um, the inspiration for this awesomeness. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Very cool side note. That is a cool side. But that's interesting. Hey, you can just sow teeth into the earth and humans pop up. That reminds me of like the orcs from Lord of the Rings, right? Where they grow out of the mountain. Yes. And it also actually brought to mind um, the Mandrake. From Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. There's so many. And also (laughs) the Mandrake did exist outside of Harry Potter. Of course. Lore. Just so everyone's Well, obviously Harry Potter's only been around since the (laughs) the last 20 years. But a lot of people think like, oh, J.K. Rowling came up with all that on her own. Nope. Nope. Mm. I mean, fantastic books and movies, but yeah, no. But yeah, so many, I mean, there's, there's other cool references in Harry Potter to alchemy too. Hey, like, um, I think Albertus Magnus is referenced in Harry Potter and there was another, another, uh, one of those books. Well, um, Nicholas Flamel, Nicholas Flamel. he was based off a real person. I can't remember if that was his real name or not though. Anyways, read a little, little side note about that. There's alchemy in all kinds of popular culture. That's for sure. (laughs) So I have one more early alchemist. Let's hear it. It's a very, very, very short side note, but a lot of people will know him if they're familiar with alchemy at all. Um, his name is Jabir. I'm totally going to butcher this. Jabir. Oh my God. Try your best. Try your best. <laughs> Jabir Ibn Hayan. <laughs> it's I-B-N. So I'm like, Ibn. 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 Anyways. Ibn. So he was around between 721 to 815. And so he was one of the earliest known near alchemists. So within that culture, I can't remember if he was in Turkey. He was somewhere around there. But um, he was one of the first in that region. Okay. And people kind of, he took up a lot of the same ideas and continued on with Aristotle. So he definitely, um, yeah, he thought the idea of the four elements and the um, hot, dry, wet, cold processes were like, yeah, his basis for understanding alchemy. Um, And basically... Yeah, there is a reference in Islamic alchemy to this certain goal um, of this artificial creation of life in the laboratory up to and including the human. So again, really, they don't call it a homunculus as far as... This was from the World Heritage Encyclopedia, by the way. Interesting. But um, yeah, definitely all this will be in our show notes. Yeah. Um, I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, just a very early reference. I never found any explicit recipes again from this guy, but... He was just continuing on with the trend, hey? Just... Yeah. Yeah. And that was the only version of scientific chemistry that they knew of. So, to yeah, me, that's there's a there lot was. of legitimacy there. Like, they're pioneers, Well, that's man. the thing. I mean, alchemy just, just gets a... It's It has a certain connotation to it. People think of it in relation to the stereotypes, creating gold, creating the elixir of life, all these kinds of things. But really, it was just a term that you know designated to people who are experimenting with stuff mm-hmm. you know you're experimenting with different elements you're experimenting with whatever and you know that sort of jaded perception we have of them might have been a result of the 
slight anger of the status quo of academia at that time, right? Because if you're pushing these boundaries and you're going down rabbit holes, so to speak, and and maybe not using all the kosher ideas of the time, whether it's religious or, or otherwise, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, definitely. They were unorthodox. Yeah. Is what I'm trying to well, get and out, as soon as things started to shift into the, yeah, the, the, the era of empiricism after, uh, that, like the Baconian mm-hmm. empiricism or whatever, people, people don't like to have their results, you know, they don't, they don't want to have anybody that's not related to science contrasted with their work. So alchemists, you know, moving into the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, yeah, they were the heretics, (laughs) even though really it's just like, okay, they were just the people that were taking a few things that maybe more mainstream scientists weren't willing to experiment with. Yeah, for the sake around. of their careers, perhaps. There's so many well, academics you see that today. today. Yeah, totally. Where right? people are like, I'm not going to oh, do. Not touch that with ten foot pole because right? nope, it's well, my career. Even online. for me, like... I've ta- I've I've mentioned like the idea of of uh, pre-Columbian contact theories, like mm. when we were at university, and you know, I'd bring that up with professors, and they'd be like, Oh, I'm you know like really fascinated with about that, especially in the anthropology mm-hmm, department. Mm-hmm. Really fascinating. But if you spend a ton of time and publish a public, paper yeah, on that, exactly, yeah. people are going to look down their nose at you. Oh yeah. So. Definitely, the that is something that would be coming up in culture. the in the 16th, 17th centuries too, for yeah, sure. Definitely, definitely. Mm-hmm. But I'm glad there's people out there that are still willing to try the bizarre, and right? we just get to talk about it, which is kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just try making a homunculus. <laughs> I guess we could, although I. I mean, w- the we... belly of a sow, or just a glass jar. I guess we can use that as our. We seen a bunch of horse manure. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, do you want to give one of those stories? Do you have any of well, those queued up? Well, that's kind of where I feel like this is leading. Yeah. Yeah. So since we've covered, yeah, a couple early alchemists leading up to, yeah, this is basically like what we would refer to as the Dark Ages if you're just being really like, you know, blanket coating. Yeah. Really wasn't Dark Ages. No, it wasn't. That was just the term because it was, there wasn't a ton of good, great record keeping. Exactly. And it's not as if there weren't arts and there weren't whatever. It's hilarious, right? Like when you're in... You think it's just school, chaos you think it's and like you're just like... Everything. The weather was always terrible. Right? Plagues <laughs> everywhere. Was, Disease, yeah. famine. Oh my God, you can't but, do anything. No, there was a massive flourishing of arts and mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and sciences too. Al- alchemy too, for sure. Yeah. So anyways, moving on from that. Yeah. So we're moving into basically the high Middle Ages. So this is pre-scientific revolution still. Mm-hmm. Um, this period spans between 1500s to mid 1700s yep so one of my favorite homunculus stories goes with these two austrians their names were abe jeloni mm-hmm. and count kufstein count kufstein um, both of them were pretty shady characters uh jeloni was apparently a supposed mystic and rosicrucian which we'll get into in the second part yep and as well count kufstein was a freemason so anyways there's people that. definitely don't trust freemasons I don't really. Like, <laughs> it's you funny. Know. You can go on their website and you're like, oh, you really don't have much to hide, but you're very obscure still too. Very like mysterious. I saw some photos from their Facebook, the Ohio branch Facebook account. Mm-hmm. Very odd. Yeah, it's obscure. It's very They're strange. All wearing these white gloves. You're like, what is that? Anyways. Yeah. Just wash so, your hands. Why do you need the gloves? <laughs> Anyway, no, I don't think they're pure. No, no, no. (laughs) Um, Anyways, so yeah, this was in 1775. So this is a later, excuse me, this is a later account. And apparently, um, Count Johann Ferdinand von Kufstein, together with this Abe Jeloni, who was an Italian cleric, slash mystic, slash Rosicrucian, 
Um, I mean, those are just labels. I mean, like they are. Like no, these this, people, is, this is just rumors. Yeah, these people. This is these not... people were labeled whatever. Whoever opposed them wanted to label them, right? <clears throat> mm. So just just to say, because I don't want it to sound as if the stories <clears throat> behind. Because a lot of these people who claimed to, and we're going to get into that in part two uh, in even more detail with some of the people more modern era who have claimed to have created homunculus. They're reputable people or they knew reputable people and then they have this weird mention or a blurb and you're just like what right. <laughs> okay so there's these links and associations with very reputable people in society and european mm-hmm. culture and things like that it's very bizarre anyway continue so these two have reportedly created a court of homunculi so this is 10 homunculi <laughs> and they Not all one. are in glass containers apparently kept at kufstein's masonic lodge in vienna Oh, yeah, I remember reading And there that. is a German, um, I don't know what his actual, he's a doctor of some sort, he's got a PhD or whatever. Anyways, his name is Emil Besetzi, and uh, <laughs> he wrote Die Sphinx, which actually has a more um, detailed chapter relating to this account, yeah. but I couldn't find an English version, so if anyone can find that for me, that'd be great. We'll have to wait for our friend Josh to come come home oh, and yeah. he can translate it. come home from Japan! Yeah. God! Anyways... <laughs> Um, yeah, so these two, they created a whole court, including a king, a queen, a monk, a nun, a seraph, which I'm not even sure what that is, an architect, a miner, and two more ambiguous things called a blue spirit and a red spirit. The blue spirit reportedly, these were just like colors that would kind of like float in the liquid of the jars. And then you would, apparently you would wrap on the seal of the jar, which was a, an oxen bladder. And you would speak in Hebrew. So this is very esoteric, right? Totally. Getting into that. Well, and there's, there's a bit and, behind um, that. Yeah, keep Yeah, going. so the red spirit was apparently very um, satanic. And it basically was like the devil's face would appear. And, um, and in the blue jar, the blue spirit was very angelic. So it's almost like, yeah, bipolar. Good and evil, bipolar, yeah. Right? But these, the, the coolest part about this story to me was that these ten homunculi were produced under questionable circumstances obviously they were in glass jars they did have some sort of biological ingredients in the jars and they were buried under horse manure for i can't remember how many weeks i think it was six weeks i think that's and then by the time they re like unearthed them they were about six inches tall and each one the funnest part about this is that each one of them they're almost like metahumans because like they were able to predict things about the future and they had their own they were specialists they had this knowledge that they would basically how it was relayed was that basically um kufstein would take these to his masonic meetings and they would spout off knowledge and all these crazy like you know wonderful wisdoms about the world and it was all highly specialized so things like the king he would only talk about politics the monk would talk about religion, and same with the nun, I guess. The architect would talk about buildings and all the wonderful... Anyway, so right. all these, they all had their own little niche of knowledge, yeah. and I just thought that was so cool. That is so fascinating. It's, biz- it's bizarre. It is bizarre. And so anyways... You know, yeah, but it's really fascinating. That's what we're all about. Totally. And it was so interesting, and apparently um, they weren't happy with the size of them, and so they ended up burying them again for another six weeks, and when they unearthed them... They were approximately 12 inches. They're almost too big for the jars after that. And the cutest part, I, I keep saying this, but anyways, <laughs> I just love the story so much. 
um, the king was apparently just smitten with the queen and would always try and get out of his jar and, and go and climb in hers, like, be together. And it was this whole funny thing. But that kind of doesn't make sense because they do have other accounts where, because um, the jars would have to be cleaned, right? The wa- They were kept in yeah. water, essentially. Yeah. And the jars would be cleaned, like, every week, every two weeks, that type of thing. Unless it was the red spirit. It had to be cleaned, like, every, like, two or three days or else it just stank, apparently. Interesting. But yeah, so when they were cleaning these, they would obviously take the little guys out and uh, and they would faint. They would just be very, they would basically just look like they were just like going down to sleep and dying essentially. But hmm. yeah, and then when they were put back in, they were revitalized. And so they had to live in water. That's weird. They're aquatic humanoid beings, miniature humanoids. Well, that's just it though. It's like they're, they're like the descriptions are humanoid, but they're, they're not, they're definitely not human. Mm -hmm. And of course with that story, it's like, you can see the allegory everywhere, like for modern culture, right? Like even the relationships between, you know, king and queen and the, the, you know, the, the hierarchy of the court and things like that. Right. Yeah. But but it's just, it's a bizarre allegory. It's weird. It's like, why would you... Because, like, I know we watched that little brief um, thing on The Bride of Frankenstein where they actually, if you YouTube it, we'll have it in our show notes as well. Mm-hmm. If um, you go and search that up, um, you basically get a scene where, oh, it's not Frankenstein. It's, like, his master is showing him his his creations. And it's basically homunculi. And he pulls out these jars and they're fully dressed, fully formed um, miniature humans, like, the the king's wearing a full, like, you know, getup that a king yeah. would wear, and same with the queen and all that. So in my <laughs> mind, I'm trying to picture this with Count Kufstein and all them, right? Yeah. Like, were these things clothes? Like, were they... Like, that's were they the weird part. Like that, little but, See, that's them. the part where I feel like it. it's... There's... I mean, there's embellishment with every historical story, right? Mm-hmm. Whether or not this is completely made up and it's 100% allegorical... For the, I mean, this is just one specific story, and mm-hmm. we'll get into a few other accounts of homuncula. Whether or not it's completely 100% allegorical, I can't really say. It's a bizarre allegory, if that's the route you're going. But it's, if, right? Like, why this, would you say that you've this done this? In this specific account, it does not translate as that at all. No, no. And in Emile Besetny, anyways, in his Die Sphinx, which is actually a Masonic handbook, by the way. Okay. Um... Yeah, so he devotes an entire uh, chapter to the subject, and he details numerous accountable persons that were able to testify to having seen this homunculi from right. the Masonic um, chapter themselves. Right. So people like Count Max Lamberg and Count Franz Joseph von Thun are both given as uh, reputable examples. So is there people just that this? this? I mean, and if there's, if there's going to be any group of people that are going to be able to have passed down some sort of esoteric knowledge throughout the centuries, it would be within the depths of Freemasonry. Mm, and that's the part about that. all this that's the most interesting to me because at first when you brought this up, I'm like, that sounds ridiculous. I don't know if I want to mm-hmm. do a full episode on mm-hmm. that. Maybe we can do a mini episode, but you we know what? We need to contextualize There it. is a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we and, and I think we've done a good job of that so far, mm-hmm. giving the background, but it's just, it doesn't make sense to me that all of this would be allegory and just the fact that there's ingredients that we don't understand and the idea that yeah, when we transitioned into an era of science and all these alchemists got shunned, you know, knowledge got lost. There could have been some, some something, there's a disconnect. Mm-hmm. When well, we're, you when even we're made lo- the comment about the Library of Alexandria that one time. Right? Sure, yeah, like, like there could have been references so to all kinds of different, yeah. There, that, like, what, yeah. If, what if all the secrets of the pyramids were in that library? And they gone. probably, <laughs> probably, some gone. of them probably were in there. Probably. And, and like, and yeah, they're gone forever, we'll never know. 
or well, not necessarily. We might under you know, you never mm. know. You could unearth things later on, but it's all strange, man. It's, it's all, all bizarre. super bizarre. And another funny part about this account that I thought kind of related to um, current models and attempts at making a homunculus was the I, the account of the death of the monk. Right. So the homunculi that was the monk. Um, after, this was after Jeloni had departed from Kufstein's company, but apparently one day Kufstein was carrying the jar of the monk and it shattered on the ground and the monk died and he was devastated, buried him in the backyard, that type in the garden. And he wasn't able to reproduce him without Jeloni. And basically how it was described, uh, that his attempts at making another one failed and resulted in a leech like thing that died shortly. That reminds me of some of the things we've seen on some YouTube videos lately. <laughs> yeah, we've watched a, a few YouTube videos. There's some modern, modern, I'm doing air quotes, you can't see it because we're podcasting, mm-hmm. um, alchemists yeah. that have been attempting to recreate homunculi. Well, alchemists, like that one Russian guy, and yeah. then skeptics, people that are just yeah. taking a more, like, uh, an approach that we would take, right? And being like, okay, let's, let's just do this from a scientific standpoint. There was one guy totally. I came across, he was trying to use, like, chicken eggs and duck eggs and yeah. i can't remember what he was actually if he was infusing it with sperm or he, was, he was yeah I, I saw that one too yeah it was yeah. semen and uh and, the, and, the, one and with the whole blood though or something yeah yeah the, well blood's incorporated oh, i think so blood gross. is incorporated in all the recipes not I, all of them. I, i'm most of them i mean it's either a, it's either incorporated in the combination at the beginning or it's a f- you feed it with blood mm. so that's 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 one of the common yeah i saw things. several accounts that were like after you bury it and everything then you have to basically um baste it in a disgusting mixture of all these biological and organic fluids and, and i feel like that is the obvious reason why like and that was the reason why i was so hesitant to do this show even because i, I the gross you, know, you look at it and you're like okay this sounds ridiculous obviously these things aren't real never existed but yeah. when you start to dig deeper and you look at yeah, okay, and you're looking at all these references saying, oh, it's just 100% allegorical, or it's 100% this, 100% that. But then there's so much that we don't know about mm-hmm. things they were using or what type of esoteric knowledge was passed on. You can find that, it, you, can, you, can, you, can, you can dig that up in any topic. How were the pyramids built? You know, the Coral Castle in Florida, how the heck did that guy build the place? You know, how, how were certain things done? You know, and it ties into religion too. I mean, you mentioned uh, earlier, like... Um, like Aristotle took a lot of his influence from Egyptian alchemy. Is that what you mentioned? I think was the connection. Um, yeah. Like ancient, 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 um, Egyptian culture and then ancient, ancient Greek, like pre-Greek culture. Right. And um, ancient Jewish culture in the, in the Kabbalah, the Kabbalah. Mm-hmm. you know, they, they, some of the, some, the Jews were some of the best alchemists. They, they, you know, they were, they were scientists. They were in this, you know, pursuit of knowledge for sure. And some yeah. of it was learned from Egyptian alchemists, like while they were obviously in Egypt and then eventually moved out of Egypt with mm. Moses and all that jazz. But there's definitely ties to not only ancient alchemy, but religion as well. And the idea that it's not just tied into spirituality, but I mean, even yeah. Jesus is almost even like a reverse homunculus in that story, right? right? The virgin birth. So mm-hmm. a lot of these things are tied into the idea of homunculi, the idea of creating life. From yes. matter. Creating life from matter in non non typical typical ways. Yes. Non bio and, 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 and yeah, like so like today we look at like the ingredients used and it's like that's insane. Like there's no way. But then we we're like the, missing. The, we're, the, the context is, is gone. For example, what is the arcanum of human blood? The arcanum. Like is that the plasma? I don't know. What the heck is that? What Anyways. is stardust? 
right? Is that an asteroid from <gasps> this is where a we meteor need that's Travis. crash landed? <laughs> so yeah, this is why we're stoked to bring on Travis from the history yeah. of alchemy for part two. But these are just these are things to me that don't people people. That's the thing about modern science and and empiricism and all that. It's like we 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 see something empirically, so that's how it is, right? Well, that's just even. Um... I read an interesting article the other day about, um, oh my gosh, who was it? It was Michu Kakao, I think, Kaku, I think her, his or her name was, a physicist. Um, and they have a book called Physicist of the Impossible. And they basically were making the point that like our society today is kind of bound by the measurable, the visible. Yeah. Um, the, yeah, the rationalized version of everything. Like, you know, and he made the point too. He went into um, the idea of dark matter as it is weighable. So it is measurable, but we right. can't perceive it. No. But it makes up 23% of our universe. No. So it's yeah, very it, strange. It's a, it, so you need you need a bit of both, yeah. right? You can't... It's almost like, yeah, we rely on science as our objective reality. When is there such a thing? Is science our new religion of this Well, it, it totally culture? is. I mean, it comes down to the idea of epistemology, like your way of knowing. Mm-hmm. And th- that ties into this for me. That's massively because there's this whole idea that we can try to pick apart things from the past and if you're looking at something from the 17th century it's more recent than 500 bc obviously but the point is is that context change the lens the lenses in in which we see the world change yeah Mm -hmm. legitimacy changes and the ways of knowing change so we transitioned to, into an era of empiricism and scientific knowledge, mm-hmm. and that's how we see the world. But that's the whole idea behind esoteric knowledge, that there, that there are there things are out there. There's things they, out there yeah. that we can't explain today in 2018. Mm-hmm. And maybe some of those things were explained or could have been explained in a different context and through a different lens millennium ago. Mm-hmm. Because the epistemology was different. We, we could see things differently. And you're now throwing we out can't... big words there, just FYI. Well, I did the de- definition. I mean, your way of knowing. Epistemology just means your way of knowing something, mm-hmm. essentially, in broad strokes. It's kind of funny. Even just saying that and having such a basic definition, it's like, sure, way of knowing. Some people might think of an ideology as their way of knowing. But no, an ideology is something you subscribe to that right. you're more conscious of. Right. Your epistemology is something below the conscious level. It, yeah, it like informs, literally It our... informs how you know what you know right. and why you know it. Right. Gets so. into kind of, yeah. Anyway, if you want to pick up a get... Michel Foucault book, uh, what was the one we read? In uh, our... The Order of Things. Yeah, that was a really cool read. Very cool. It took me like five times uh... through to really pick up And then up once you finish a chapter, down. you literally look at the beginning of the chapter, you're like, I yeah, you got to reread each page like five times. Yeah, pretty much. But it's very interesting because it definitely ties into this. I mm-hmm. mean, there's things that ancient peoples knew that we just simply don't today. And I think that might tie into some of the ingredients and things used in ancient And, you know, alchemy. that's a nice little um, segue into, um, yeah, our sort of, our our last, well, we're not really going to get into Paracelsus. Just wanted to give him a brief mention before we wind down for well, part one. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because he, this guy was a, per, or, yeah, he was a pioneer in medicine he did do a lot of, um, yeah, breaking down those barriers and sort of expanding horizons of medicine, mm-hmm. credit of being, bringing laudanum to Western medicine after travels abroad. And he was just, I don't know, he was a little bit of a, a maverick, I would say. Paracelsus is going to be a focus for part two. Yeah, he was. Yeah, time. he will be. He was a prominent alchemist of his time, um, a theorized, oh, he was the inspiration for Rosicrucianism too, a lot of people. Yeah, so part two, we're going to get into the details behind Rosicrucianism. 
and and I, Freemasonry and Freemasonry. The connections to homunculi and alchemical al- alchem- oh, I can't talk right alchemical alchemical <laughs> knowledge forms. That's that right. And a bunch of the other modern alchemists that kind of tie into this story of the homunculi. Yeah. And obviously our interview with Travis Dow. Yeah. Lots to look forward to. But for now, we'll leave you with this from Franz Hartman. A person who preemptorily denies the existence of anything which is beyond the horizon of his understanding, because he cannot make it harmonize with his accepted opinions, is as credulous as he who believes everything without any discrimination. Either of these persons is not a free thinker, but a slave to the opinions which he has accepted from others.